Hello, and welcome to Just Don't Care Yourself Today podcast. Uh, my name is Farley, and I'm with Paul Ill today. Musician, good friend, um, he'll tell you more. Uh, and Paul, how are you doing today? Thanks for asking. Good to see you, Farley. Well, I'm hopeful today. So I start off every podcast with this question. Paul, where were you born? I was born in a town called Bad Cannstatt, Germany, outside of Stuttgart, uh, in a American Army base hospital. My parents were, uh, my dad was in the military at that time, and my mom had gotten out of the military, and she was a civilian nurse working in the community with my dad in the military community. What religion did you grow up with? Roman Catholics, but very strange Roman Catholics. My mom is a first-generation born American, uh, Polish Romani gypsy and so she her family uh, tradition of is a black Madonna gypsies they're really strange they're kind of like Rastafarians they it's a small sect of Catholicism that's pretty big in, in uh, Poland and they believe that um, the Virgin Mary was from Africa and so we'd walk into my house, there'd be all this iconography around the house, like Russian iconography paintings, Eastern European paintings. Baby Jesus had like this little cool nap, and Virgin Mary was really dark skinned with really long black hair. And my Catholic friends would be like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on there? I go, don't worry, it's cool, man. It's my mom's thing, you know, that's what they're into. So that was cool. But my mom was very enlightened, like at a really young age, she, kind of hit me to her beliefs about, you know, like I remember her saying to me, listen, son, we've got to think about this. Like, how, how can we take somebody seriously if they really believe a talking snake lived in a tree and it gave a woman an apple and because the woman took the apple, we have all the problems in the world today. Like, snakes don't talk. Yeah. So it was a pretty cool household. Was your dad religious? Quietly so. But he, roughly around the age of 14 or so, he had his little chat with me, you know, the birds and the bees thing a little too late. And then he also told me that, you know, he, he, at the time he was a, uh, he was a fatalist and, uh, and a materialist. He, did, he, believe, he didn't think there was any afterlife or any of that stuff at that time. And he, he hit me to that in a very, uh, very, uh, kind and compassionate way, but I didn't buy it. Were, were your parents very supportive? Were they loving parents? Yes, with an asterisk. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, with qualification. They were busy, man. My dad was an um, army colonel when I was growing up most of my childhood, and he was a, a counterintelligence officer, which is a strange play on words if you think about it. Military intelligence, counterintelligence, what are we, the dumb guys? <laughs> But anyway, uh, he wasn't around much because we lived in Europe most of the time. And uh, he had things to do in other countries and stuff. And uh, my mom was a nurse. She, was, she had been in the military. They met in World War II. See, I'm a real old geezer. I'm long in the tooth, see? And uh, my mom served at the Battle of the Bulge. She was a, a first lieutenant when they met. My dad was a second lieutenant. They are, my, dad, my mom outranked my dad. And... She uh, has a battle star, had a battle star for the Battle of the Bulge. She's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. But they were very um, 
very liberal, like basically inner city social democrats, real close to socialists, my parents and their beliefs. And uh, very small minority in the United States military, even back then, the World War II generation. Now there were quite a few more back then, but these days they're probably few and far between. And uh, so they were busy. My mom was working as a nurse. Uh, as soon as I turned five years old, went to kindergarten, she went back to work. And I had an older sister who was six years older than me, who was like a third adult in the house. We really weren't siblings. She was like a third parent. And she was busy playing piano all afternoon and doing everything really well. She did a lot of things well, just about everything she did. But so she was busy too. So I was alone a lot as a kid. Uh, did you enjoy school? No. Uh, school was a source of um, anxiety for me. Uh, it was really weird because we moved around so much. I went to uh, three different kindergarten, first and second grades in Hawaii. And that was real traumatic and not cool because I was in the ethnic minority. And I was the recipient of a lot of racial violence because I was going to Catholic school in downtown Honolulu for first and second grade. I went to two different kindergartens and then uh, first and second grade, I went to the same school. And it was it was rough. It took a a police intervention to finally get my parents' attention. And uh, it was really a challenge being in that school. And then uh, I went to, uh, in uh, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth grade, I went to uh, two different schools in Maryland. And it was, uh, it wasn't easy. And then in seventh grade, I went to uh, two different schools in two different countries in the United States and uh, Germany. And then I went to three different high schools in three different countries, in Germany, Switzerland, and Florida. So uh, needless to say, it was, a, it was a Rubik's Cube, man, school that I never solved. Did, did you speak any other languages, or was it just strictly English? Conversational German, you know, yeah, back in the day. Uh, Germany was cool in junior high and high school. Switzerland was cool in high school. Florida was... Cool. I, I did marginally well in school academically. I didn't excel. I was the, you know, the cliche, you know, what's wrong with this kid? Nobody knew. Uh, I had a form of ADHD that made it very, very difficult. I didn't have dyslexia, but it made it very difficult for me to stay on task academically until I found music. And drugs, and, and drugs. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great. That's great, Leon. So, what what was your first instrument? A tough question, because my sister was such a good piano player. I my first instrument that I studied was piano and uh, cello. That didn't last too long. That was at Peabody Conservatory in um, Maryland, where my sister in Baltimore, where my sister was like a top piano player. She was uh, born knowing how to play the piano. She was a prenatal piano player, and by the age of 14, she could play the Russian Romantic concertos, like Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, Skriab, and that kind of stuff from memory. And her style, her performance style was really cool. It was kind of like Keith Jarrett and Tori Amos. It was really dramatic, very physical. Her eyes would roll back in her head. It was very rock, actually. She would, there were a lot of hair tosses and stuff, but not 80s metal rock yeah. hair tosses, but like just like, more like being possessed by spirits kind of hair tosses, you know. And so I didn't cut make the grade as a pianist in my own mind because of her. And uh, 
the cello thing didn't last that long because I was too kinetic. They, they, they asked my parents to withdraw me after about a couple of months of going there every Saturday. And then uh, the cello was a substitute for a bass because I needed a bass real bad, but my parents were like really reluctant to get me a bass guitar and an amp. They were, they wanted it to be a little more legit, I guess. Cello was close. I guess they had a conference with my sister about that. Uh, but the reason I wanted a bass was because uh, when I was eight years old, I saw this band on Ed Sullivan and they had a bass player named Paul who was left-handed like me. And uh, it was kind of freaky because they, they kind of turned the whole world upside down. It was like an alien spaceship landed in everybody's lives. They were called the Beatles. You might've heard of them. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and my sister's reaction and her two older friends' reaction also influenced me socially about music, watching the older girls, young women freak out. And uh, so I got a bass when I was uh, in the seventh grade. Uh, actually, at the end of sixth grade, I got a bass. I got a Vox Panther, three-quarter scale bass, and a Harmony 420 amplifier. And uh, at the time, my dad was in Korea for a year, and my mom figured that would keep me in the house, right? And it did. Yeah, so bass was uh, what I, I always wanted to play. I always sat on the left side of the piano when my sister was playing piano, and I'd plunk on the dark keys. She'd pick me up and put me on the right side and play the light keys, the high keys, and I go, nah, no tinkly stuff for me. I want that power down low. The big bottom. Those guys. Yes. Right? Yeah. Spinal tap. Yes. Good dudes. I use an amplifier by a company called Fat Jimmy. Mike Pascal builds them. And my, I love this bass amp. And uh, it's called a Bass Odyssey, uh -huh. like Jazz Odyssey from Spinal Tap, that song. And all the knobs go to 11. So I'm really, really? happy with that. Yeah. I really enjoy that amplifier. Best amplifier I've ever owned. What song did you last sing to yourself? Wow, good question. Because there have been a few today. Let me think chronologically. Well, I was in the bathroom getting ready to come here because I had to make sure I was uh, hygienic. My hygiene was appropriate. Uh, what was on? Oh, man, I was listening to that uh, Bob Dylan theme music hour on uh, Sirius XM. They've been replaying those. And I was singing along with this really weird song about cats because the theme of the song was cats and I, I can't remember the artist or the song for that matter but the song definitely hooked me because i was singing along with it i didn't sing along with anything in the car over here and we had our little jam before yeah. we recorded this you played some badass drums and i played the zimgar guitar through the new marshall origin amplifier that Mickey Osanke was so gracious to give me. And, uh, but I didn't sing along with that song. We just played that. What is your daily spiritual practice? I've been real good about this, especially during COVID, because I've had to, about when I get up in the morning, I have to check my phone just to see we still have a planet left, this country or whatever. But I, I do that very briefly. And then I, without, before I get out of my sleeping clothes or whatever, 
I have a practice of contemplation and prayer where I read some stuff. It's very eclectic. And then I meditate for 21 minutes. And sometimes it'll drive me crazy. I got to keep the phone away from me so I won't be looking at the timer. Sometimes it's pretty blissful. Uh, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pretty chaotic, sitting there and quiet. But I try to keep my eyes closed. I focus on my breath. Sometimes I have a, a repeated thought mantra that wasn't given to me by a guru or anything. I've never done TM. I have studied some Hindu practices, and I've. it's basically from the, the uh, Yogananda school, you know, the Self-Realization Fellowship. In my meditation, I do have a statement that I say over and over again, and I breathe. I try to listen for the silence, try to quiet the mind, and try to observe the spaces between the thoughts. Prior to COVID, I was doing subjective research into flotation tanks, uh, by myself, and also I would occasionally take a friend. And the flotation really changed a lot of things for me. Now when I meditate, I can see the same mandalas occasionally that I w when I was floating. And the flotation was at a place called Just Float up in Pasadena, which is like the Ritz-Carlton of flotation. Each tank is like its own little room. It's really cool. You got a shower. You get your own um, bathrobe and stuff. But I really had a very, very cool experiences floating in 2000. 19. That influenced my meditation practice in the morning. So that's my morning practice. Then throughout the day, I am very prone to being knocked off the beam by my, my first person thinking, I'm screwing up. I don't deserve this. This really sucks. Why me? Those voices still, surprisingly at my age, are, are quite loud sometimes. So I try to pull them back to thankfulness, forgiveness, acceptance, gratitude, thoughts of that stuff, literally, like changing my thinking. I also um, have been fortunate enough to be exposed to some pretty cutting-edge psychotherapeutic techniques lately, acceptance commitment therapy and stuff like that that's very mindfulness-based. It's solution-oriented, it's process-oriented, it's not pathological, pathologizing, it's not problem-oriented. So. Um, in actions, I think the spiritual practice that I have is I just try to treat people as I'd want to be treated. I don't have any children, but if I had young children, I try to behave towards people the way I would want people to behave towards my young children, say. And with respect to the space around me and the world around me, I try to leave it in better condition than when I came there. When did you have that aha moment or that moment it was time for you to get sober? There were a series of them, but the one that I think catalyzed my surrender happened February 18th, 1990. I was in Riverside, California, and at the time I was an active duty Air Force officer. Now to look at me, you definitely know I'm not officer material. I certainly never planned on ending up in the military. Uh, in fact, I was an anti-war demonstrator as a young kid on army bases and caused my dad a lot of problems. But what happened was uh, I hadn't drank in 13 months because I had experienced a perforated ulcer from drinking. I was going to get out of the military in about a month and a half. A friend of mine who I had played music with in New York in the early 80s, between 81 and 84, had had a moment in a rather big band. I was getting out of the Air Force, and he was no longer associated with that band. 
and uh, he had been living in England, and he came to Southern California and said, hey, let's put the band back together. Let's do this again. We decided to celebrate and drink. I hadn't drank in 13 months, and I drank maybe one inch of Jack Daniels out of a pint bottle, maybe two ounces of Jack Daniels, and I had a horrific experience. I blacked out um, because I'm so physically allergic to alcohol that, that I had no tolerance, and that little bit of alcohol put me in a blackout. And I went out to the base track to run off the hangover and halfway through the second mile of a three-mile run on a big circular track, halfway through the second mile, something stopped me dead in my tracks. And it said to me, if you can figure out a way not to drink alcohol or use drugs one day at a time, all your dreams will come true faster than you can imagine. In the vernacular of recovery, a spiritual experience uh, happens suddenly. Spiritual awakening happens gradually. That's the difference, apparently, what the people that started using that language a lot in the 30s and the 40s meant. The world really stopped, Farley, for a couple of seconds. The world got really silent, and I heard a disembodied voice. It was neither male nor female. So I went back to my house. So Rick was up and about, and his, his girlfriend was really freaked out by our behavior the night before. We weren't violent. We hadn't harmed ourselves or her. But we had been really, really wildly inappropriately drunk and broken things. The place was in disarray. It was not what normal people do. A divine intervention is what, is what I think it is. I really do. I think it's not of this world, what happened to me. And I said, hey man, I gotta do something about this. And he said, well, call Tim, uh, who had managed the band he had been in. I said, yeah, I'll call him. He was a big wig because the band had gotten really big again. I called this dude. This receptionist took my call at an office in Boston, like at four in the afternoon. It was one in the afternoon in LA. And I said, uh, hey, Tim, this is uh, Paul Ill. You may know me. I played on your band's record, one of your records. He goes, I remember you. And I said, yeah, uh, I need to get some help. I need to go to this uh, fellowship that I know those guys are going to. And he said, yeah, we've been saving you a seat. And I said, oh, really? And in my mind, Farley, I actually saw a tan director's chair, you know, like those director's chairs that you see on set. And it had my name on the back in, in, in yellow or gold letters across the back, like, you know, you see in film and television sets and in the movies and TV shows. And it was poolside at a cool house, right? I saw it in my head. I'm like, yeah, saving me a seat. Fortunately, it wasn't that. He hooked me up with a guy named Doug, who threw Rick. And uh, I went to Doug's house, and there were a bunch of guys hanging out in Doug's living room, about 30 of them. And uh, that was 30 years ago. Wow. But the six years prior to that were pretty awful. I knew something was up and I knew I needed help. I just didn't know what to do. And I did some really dumb stuff, like join the Air Force. What the Air Force thing, what happened was I was living in New York City. Okay. And I was working at a recording studio called Unique Recording. And it was amazing what was going on around me. Uh, I was a witness to it. I really wasn't a participant because I was so debilitated by my addictions. I was uh, a non-intravenous heroin user. I was smoking it and snorting it, and I was a non-intravenous cocaine user, snorting a lot of coke. It, yeah, it was very dark. It was really a rough time. I was strung out, and I eventually lost everything. I lost career. I lost my home, all my relationships, and I was in desperate, desperate, desperate shape, and I finagled an apartment somehow and my parents intervened on me there but that began my journey to recovery it had happened three and a half years after my sister had been killed by a drunk driver when she was three months pregnant so that kind of spun me out 
those years were very dark. I knew I was in trouble, and I was working with a guy by the name of Peter. I, I was his musical director before I got physically dependent on heroin. And we had a gig. We got to go to Japan, right? And this dude, Peter, had been in a big band. He was in the Monkees. Peter Tork was the first sober person I ever met. He was not, God rest his soul. He was nine months sober at the time. And he tried to help me join this fellowship that he was in. And I just wasn't hearing it. He said, well, when we go to Japan, you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to go into withdrawals. You're going you're gonna to get f physically sick and you know, hey, you know, you got a lot of responsibilities, man. What are you going to do? You got to do something about that. And I said, no, I'm going to be fine. In fact, I'm going to show you now. I don't, I don't need to do any of that stuff. I'm going to stop now. And this was like about a month before we left. And I stopped for about eh, six hours or so, maybe. You know what I'm saying? But I managed to get through this trip to Japan without drinking. I didn't drink any alcohol. I didn't take any drugs at all. And we came back to New York and I said, see, I was pretty resilient. I was 24 years old, but that was 81. By 83, it got really dark. The intervention from my parents, I kept. I went back to Florida and I, I went into withdrawals and I didn't go to detox or rehab or treatment or any sort of support groups or anything. I just kicked at my mom and dad's house because that's the selfish kind of asshole I am, you know, just horrifically suffering in their home after they had you know, in the last three and a half years prior, lost their daughter and their unborn grandchild. It was pretty dark times, man. I drank my way through that, and then I drank my way into the Air Force. I decided to go into the military to get out to California because I didn't have anything. And both my parents were completely opposed to it. I had a degree from Berklee College of Music and Composition. It, I, I was miserable. I had lost everything. Became very physically uncomfortable with myself. I gained a lot of weight from drinking and sloth and not having any mental health support, not having any spiritual fellowship support or self-help groups or any of that stuff. So I was on my own again. I said, no, 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 I got to do this. I got to do this. And I actually snuck into the Air Force. And then I went into alcohol withdrawals at officer training school, which was not fun in San Antonio at Medina, Air, uh, Medina Complex at that really big Air Force base. I don't want to remember it. That's okay. <laughs> but dig, man, it, you know, it wasn't cool, but I got through it. And then I came out to California Two years into my Air Force career, I drank a hole in my stomach and I suffered a perforated ulcer. And I nearly died at a medical center of North Hollywood. My ulcer perforated on stage at the Troubadour at a sound check. I was playing in a band that was, in my mind, the last version of the American Southern rock prog band Captain Beyond. But the drummer of that band had started a solo band and, and my ability to create my own magical thinking, my own delusional realities. I thought I was playing in Captain Beyond, kind of, but I wasn't. And the band was horrible. We were out of step with the times. It was, it was not cool. My condition at that time, quite frankly, was uh, really bad. Ironically, I had duplicated my mother's alcoholism. I had emulated it. That's how she was when she was a nurse. I grew up in a home with a alcoholic drinking. So... Um, it is definitely genetic. It's definitely a family situation, family thing. So uh, it was an interesting time because that perforated ulcer kind of got my attention, but not really. My plan was to save up a lot of money, get out of the Air Force, buy a half a pound of Coke, a quarter pound of heroin. That would equip me to meet the right people when I moved 80 miles west to Los Angeles. My plans aren't good plans. So you got out, and is that when your sobriety started? Yes, oh, cool. that's exactly what happened. What happened was is 
on February 18th, 1990, I woke up, had my spiritual experience, and it was, uh, you know, what I didn't see a burning bush. You know, I didn't get hit by a bolt of lightning, but uh, I definitely got stopped in my tracks, and I heard a disembodied voice. It wasn't me. The one day at a time stuck with me because people had taken me to a fellowship where that's one of their slogans. I went, oh, that's what that means. That's why I connected the dots to Rick's band and that manager guy in Boston. So I'm sitting in his living room going, wow, this dude's not doing drugs or alcohol, and he's letting all these guys come over to his house on a Wednesday night and sit in a circle. They're doing that not to drink and use. I went, well, I'm in. This is kind of cool. What was that? Did you guys, was there like a truce? Did you, did you guys have a moment? My dad and I had a very multifaceted relationship, I think is the way to say it. I think people are like fine cut gemstones, right? We imagine a diamond out in space or fine cut and the light hits it, you know, and the light refracts off it in all different directions. And some people see the rainbow. Some people just see bright white, you know. I think people are like that. You know, we reflect light very differently. And with respect to my dad's relationship, and I mean, come on, man. The guy was on my side the whole time. Uh, I wasn't on his side. That's That's the bottom line. All right, I was a really frightened. We had some really, really strange experiences at a young age, my dad and I. There was um, a couple of incidences that my mom nearly divorced him over where, uh, you know, uh, I, because this is a public forum, his legacy is so profound and so positive. I don't want to focus on, you know, a couple of incidences that uh, over time certainly have bear far less weight on my psyche than they used to. Um, but we we became, I mean, it. you know, I mean, these guys really, really tried to help me. I was a very sick drug addict and alcoholic, Farley. I was homeless in New York, you know. I remember that commercial for Bud Light with, they had the dog with the eye, the circle around oh, his uh, eye. Uh, Spud, Spud Webb. Spud. <laughs> Right. You know, <laughs> everywhere in the Bud Light commercials, people would crack a Bud Light and right. all of a sudden they're on a yacht with all these amazingly beautiful people. Everybody's handsome. Everybody's attractive. Everybody's beautiful. The women are beautiful. The men are handsome. There's a yacht. Everybody's smiling. And the dog's there. Right. That was not my story. There was no yachts. There was no Spud. You know, there was no. Uh, there were people that at one time possibly were attractive, but none of us were. I did not have an easy road to hoe. I was unemployable for years, right? It, barely employable and then unemployable. So my mom and dad really, really uh, got the brunt of it. And we were they were always my allies. The relationship was always difficult. Um, but it was also good, too, at times. Like, it was very... Uh, multifaceted you know there was a lot of really good stuff too there was a lot of um privilege i mean come on my dad was a colonel and my mom was a nurse i went to a very prestigious music school i didn't pay for that they did i had to work mind you while i was there i was in the work study program just like when i was in junior high but my father and i are very close now we've been very close for years is the simple answer to that question and it took some work some of the work we did was 
thankful to the, the spiritual fellowship I'm in, the acknowledgement of my part in any damage done and the restitution made for that, right? There's, there's the means by which to do that. Right. Uh, he's my closest ally and he's fading fast. You know, he could be here another two days. He could be here another two months. He could be here another two years. Who knows? But everything's cool. This, this question, Lisa thought was amazing. Five records that saved your life. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> you should have sent me that one. All right, today, that list might change tomorrow. God, just five? Well, I mean, as, <laughs> as, many, as many as you... No, I'm going to give you five, because yeah, okay. that's what everybody okay. else did. Well, okay, Are You Experienced by Hendrix. I can remember exactly where I was the first time I heard it. Uh, I was in Reese Martin's room and he played it for me and I was a voracious science fiction reader as a little kid and uh, I grew up in a very musically friendly household with my sister and my mom. My mom and dad weren't particularly musically gifted but there was a lot of music around our house. So definitely Are You Experienced was a game changer. Either Rubber Soul or Revolver by the Beatles. Probably Revolver because of Tomorrow Never Knows. That track kicked open the door for me for the possibilities of psychedelics. I'm a product, even though heroin and cocaine were this and alcohol were my nemeses and debilitators, my favorite experiences changing my consciousness were with psychedelics by far. Uh, and I'm, I have a very fragile psyche. I didn't do that many psychedelics, but boy, did the psychedelic revolution in culture have a positive influence on me. And I don't mean the psychedelic drugs. I mean the results of that era of consciousness expansion uh, in the 60s and, and early 70s. Um, I love Supreme by John Coltrane because it indicated the spiritual nature of improvisation and communing with spirits in music was possible. For the narrative, it's really hard because it's either going to be Highway 61 revisited by Bob Dylan because of that era of Bob Dylan. Uh, it could be the single like a Rolling Stone with Bob Dylan, and that's another story about me and my sister. But, or it's Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark, because the narrative, what she's singing about, her melodies, and the way they created the tracks, those three things convened so perfectly, right? To to evoke a that's what I think great songwriting and great record production and great music creation is is when your melody, your narrative, and the track, the the underlying music, the music environment that you create all converge. If I Could Only Remember My Name by David Crosby is a huge influence on me too. It's such a phenomenal record. That's a great record. And so <laughs> it's a toss-up for the singer-songwriter category. So it's I got to go with Joni Mitchell, Court, and Spark over, over Dylan and Crosby. I've only got one left. Oh man, this is tough. It might be live at the Fillmore by the Allman Brothers because of the improvisational ensemble stuff, which I love. Then that leaves out James Brown. That leaves out a lot of music that changed my life. Five is really hard for me. What about what about The Clash? Were you a, a Clash fan? It's funny you should mention that. Probably the most underrated band of the 70s in a lot of ways, of course. You know, they, I didn't see the Roseland shows or I didn't see them do Shea Stadium with The Who when I was living in New York. Those two things went down. My friends went to Roseland. I was too strung out. I was working at the studio and, and uh, working at Unique Recording and, uh, you know, not, my priorities were completely out of line. But I think The Clash had a, such a diverse musical language and most of the bands that I really like, they weren't on my list. 
I really, really like bands where there's more than one principal writer or more than one Lennon and, Mac Lennon and McCartney. Yes, they were a team, but there was really distinct voices in that band. Harrison and Ringo in his own right came into a, a, being a pretty darn good songwriter in the 70s himself. Back off Boogaloo, he wrote some really cool songs too. But or Fleetwood Mac, I'm not a big fan of the Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks era Fleetwood Mac. I respect it immensely and, and I'm still mystified to this day at how good those records are. But when it was, you know, uh, Christine McVie and Bob, what was his last, Bob Welch, you know, in the, the Bear Trees era, you had these two distinct songs, and Danny Kerwin, they, everybody wrote songs differently. Eagles, I'm not an Eagles fan, but boy, you know, the music is stunningly good, and there's different voices in it. There's different, there's different narratives because there's different writers. I like multiple narratives if it's a band usually it's uh i'm for me it was run dmc and uh, i liked the beastie boys and i really liked uh i like the fat boys that's so cool i got news for you farley i don't tell many people this but bobby nathan the owner of unique recording and me made the sample library on an emulator one with the with the old ibm floppy disk a pit sampler that went to John King's studio, Chung King House of Metal, those samples were used on License to Ill. And we, we were just making a sample library. We had nothing to do with the creation of the record. We had nothing, we, we, we had nothing, no influence on it all, but that was before any of that stuff was documented or anything. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was an amazing time, what I witnessed. I witnessed the birth of er, hip-hop in New York, the, the manifestation of it, the mainstreaming of it. I worked on Atomic Dog as an assistant engineer. I worked on Duke Booty's version of the message, not Grandmaster Flash's version, but the guy that wrote it. I worked on his version that he recorded after it was a hit. It was pretty cool, pretty exciting times. And my, well, I got to tell a funny Farley story, even though this is Farley's podcast. I, I've got, I'm going to turn the tables on you here. Okay. So Farley and I are hanging out. We're starting to make music and stuff, and st he's talking about doing his record. And we, 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 we. Uh, I said, hey, let's. I got this friend down in Seal Beach, and he's an older geezer like me, but let's go down and visit him because he just, we can go hang down at his place in Seal Beach and it's kind of near the beach, right? And he goes, Farley goes, what's his name? And I go, his name's Bill. And Farley goes, okay, cool, I'll go. So we pile a couple of people in the car and we drive down to Bill's house and we're hanging out with Bill, this really cool English guy. And we're down there, how long before you figured out who, what we were doing? It, it, it was a, it was a while. I I think I I was we were eating and talking and yeah, it, it was, I had no idea. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, it comes to Farley's consciousness that oh, I remember what it was. We were listening to the Fifth Dimension because Bill really likes the Fifth Dimension. <laughs> <laughs> so we're listening to like Up Up and Away by Jimmy Webb, you know, like just going wow, what an amazing piece of music. And then something cued you like you we f you figured out who Bill was. Yeah. So who was Bill? Bill Ward from uh, Black Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> and Farley had this aha moment like, wow, I'm listening to the Fifth Dimension with one of the Sabs. This is pretty cool. Life is A-OK. -okay. <laughs> one of the originals. And I remember how, God, he was so nice. Yeah, and amazing so guy. Just and he's so welcoming, just so you know, you walk into someone's house that you don't know and they welcome you and they make you feel uh important and make you feel loved. It's that to me, that's character. I want to say, Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast and you're a great friend. You've 
just I don't know how to put words to it. I just I love you a lot. And you've just given me the confidence at times to do things that I'm really afraid of. And the trust, the uh, non-judgmental at times pushing me, but pushing me in a healthy way, in a in a loving way. And I just I have nothing but love for you. And just I feel honored that I get to play music with you is is a big deal. Well, Farley, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you on the spot, man. What? We had a little jam that I did need to record because I do have this cool little new amp here, this Marshall Origin. You know what? I think, can we play it for your listeners off yeah. my phone? Yeah. This is Farley on drums and me playing a cool Zimgar guitar, barely playing it, kind of. Let's see if we can find this here. Here it is right here. I think this is it. Let me see. Yep, here it is. Okay, listeners. Hope you guys can hear this. This is Farley on drums here at the Psychedelic Shack. He's playing the late 60s, early 70s Ludwig psychedelic kit, Psychedelic Red. And we just had it tweaked by Gersh at Drum Fetish, so the drums sound real good. I love Gersh. Yeah, here we go. got a theme yeah. for your podcast there farley what do <laughs> yeah. you think that was oh, that was so good uh, so paul what, what would you like to to end with is there any last words well farley you know you have done for me what you assess that i do for you you've really helped me a lot i think that our our commitment to hope and healing i think we're all going to be okay because we are okay you know these are really challenging times the next What's the date today? September 27th, something like that? 26th? 26th. Yeah. The next 30, 40 days are the, some of the most important days in the history of this country since the Civil War. And, you know, we have to really, really put the common welfare first in everything we do. We're really blessed, man. We've got music and we've got this amazing podcast. And I love your title of your podcast. And I love the fact that you're out there making the world a better place, man. Thank you for letting me be part of this. Thank you so much, Paul. And we are going to play one of Paul's songs. It's called All a Dream by Paul Ill and the Glorious Now. Check this track out and enjoy it. Be good to yourself and be good to others. Thanks for listening. All a dream.